Call, the show where we go behind the curtain with the stars of the culture wars. I'm your host, Alexandra Marshall, and today we are joined by Matthew Wong. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, first of all, uh, welcome to Curtain Call. This is a show where we try to go behind the curtain, behind the scenes with the stars of the culture wars in Australian politics. You are a rising star of the whole culture war thing going on online. So, Matt, do you want to tell us about the projects you run and sort of what you're about at the moment? Not really loving the uh, title of Rising Star. It's not what I want to be. But <laughs> oh, you're uh, an established star. Would you prefer me to go with that whole you're established as a star? I'm established. I think if people understood the origin stories of where we all came from, they'd understand how normal we are. I mean, I don't know how much time we'll have to get into mine, but, you know, it came out of depression and quite a dark period of life and trying to find purpose. And then that's where Discernible was born. And that was uh, about nine months of slogging away before your first viral piece. You know, most people will do that. They'll, they'll do something for ages and then something will go viral and and they'll kind of go from there. Well, so that happened to me in September. Well, tell us about Discernible because this is where most people who are following along will have seen you before. Discernible uh, releases podcasts and various mm. uh, interviews on Facebook and on YouTube and your own website. What exactly is Discernible? Discernible was born out of the fact that I really don't like my name. I find my name way too generic. My name is Matthew Wong, W-O-N-G, like Asian, you know. And so I wanted to have something that wasn't so common to represent. Really, it's me. It's, I could have called it Matt Wong. And I like to have conversations with people because I'm quite curious. I got into, we're all curious, aren't we? But I got into a lot of trouble in school and, and at home just not just asking why, but not accepting the answers that I was getting. And so I guess that's what people like about discernible. So we look, I can show you, I can show you our Facebook page, right? This is probably the easiest way to show you. So we do TV shows. We have, I do a whole bunch of long form interviews. This is youtube.com slash discernible. We do long form interviews with a whole bunch of different people. I do a, a show called the people's project. Um, Damien Currie does a show called The Other Side Australia for us. We do like a philosophical show about Marxism and worldviews and stuff with Josh and we do live events. Basically, I'm just trying to have conversations. You know, I'll talk to, this is a singer, this is a criminal lawyer, this is an MP, this is a, a pro, like a vaccine creator who thinks we should vaccinate the whole planet. This is, you know, there, there's a like a right-wing guy, there's, there's an ex-copper, you know, I'm just... I don't really know what I'm doing, if I'm honest. I'm just trying to have conversations. <laughs> so, so basically, you are uh, someone who got into trouble as a child for asking too many, asking too many questions, and now you run your own show where you get to ask 
lots of different people questions and have a chat like I am going to do to you now. I'm going to ask you plenty of questions and see if I can get into trouble. Uh, well, the, disti the just... distinction, though, is that I got into trouble for not accepting the answers. Everyone can ask a question why, and then the adult gives you the answer, and then the kid just accepts it. Or they say, yeah, but that doesn't make sense, mum, and then they just say, shut up, that's enough. That's where my show is taking off. People like the fact that, you know, there was a vaccinologist who was on and I said, how come there's no more flu anywhere in the world, but there's heaps of COVID? And he said, well, because people are doing lots of hand washing and whatever, especially in the US. And but then, then I came back and said, hang on, what about the fact that there's heaps of COVID? And he said, oh, because no one's doing hand washing or, or following the lockdowns in the US like they are here in Australia. And then I said, hang on, do you see what you're doing right now? Which one is it? And so people like the fact that I am curious beyond what's polite. Well, that's actually quite interesting because in the press currently, there is not a lot of follow-up questions being asked. It's almost mm. a propaganda scenario where a statement is run, a few people who support that statement are interviewed. Perhaps there's one contrarian, but very rarely does a an interviewer actually start asking the logical questions and challenge the point of view of the person being interviewed. And that is what's interesting about the pieces that you do. You have longer conversations and have the opportunity to get into some of the more interesting and difficult uh, topics that are going on in the culture wars. Um, now, this is why I really want to have a chat to you, particularly, Matt. I came across you on The Good Source during uh, one of the Not Q&A sessions, and we were discussing particularly liberty. And I found your conversation surrounding the whole concept of liberty and freedom of speech to be particularly interesting. And okay. what I wanted to ask you is, do you think the West has reached peak freedom probably about 10 or 20 years ago and that we are now on the, de on the decline and that we are experiencing less freedom than we previously had? I think it's hilarious that you're asking me. I'm thir turning 35 tomorrow. What kind of experience do I have? I've really woken up a lot uh, being raised from a... If you think of the political compass, the, the traditional left, right, and then authoritarian on the y-axis at the top, and then laissez-faire, libertarian on the bottom, I was raised in the top right quadrant, so an authoritarian conservative. And I rejected a lot of that as I grew up, the authoritarian part. And I kind of embraced the, the, the seemingly good principles of free markets and uh, even behind the free market. So you've got the Steven Pinker argument, right? Steven Pinker documents how much our world has improved, uh, whether it be child mortality or uh, the number of people in poverty or starvation throughout the last uh, 100 years, thanks to capitalism and the free market, free exchange. But then I went behind that to see things like, you know, John Locke and start to understand uh, the principles behind the free market and, and Thomas Sowell and started to really understand and buy into the logic uh, that was there for free exchange of ideas and of goods and services and, and labor and so on. And then, of course, I live in Victoria. So I got a sudden practical application of all of my theory here in what can only be described as the, the sudden onslaught of what what word shall I carefully use? Perhaps it's kind of like a... It's not really totalitarian, though it has hallmarks of that. It's more of a medical dictatorship or a, a form of a medical totalitarian popular technocracy. That was a lot of carefully chosen words. In here in New South Wales, we like to call it the southern state of China, also known as Danistan. 
<laughs> there are plenty of pages. Get... Well, there are plenty of pages out there doing that, and you know, I think that's funny. But I, I just try and take a different route. So a lot of people are getting angry at the moment at Dan. Uh, my my shows were making fun of him. So I put up a great clip yesterday of Josh, my co-host for the People's Project, and myself reacting to the UK propaganda, and we just couldn't stop laughing at these crazy things they're putting out. And I think that satire and humor is a very important relief valve that we need right now because if we don't have that, we have we don't have much of that. We've got what's his name, James Re- Nathan Rees, James Rees, the guy who does those uh, funny is a comedian does those videos where he pretends to be each state and you say shut up new south wales oh look at you victoria i have actually i have actually seen those brilliant i know of him i know we're trying to do it and there's probably some others but most people reacting to the the current thing that's happening in the world today in the u.s and here in particular they're getting angry and that does not lead to a good place at the end of the day well there's very little you can do about the anger because I have personal experience down there in Victoria. I might be from New South Wales, but all of our businesses are in Victoria. And when people start losing their very real livelihoods, their businesses, their homes, and their children's education and their futures, anger is a, is a human emotion that there is very little the government can do to control. And so it's no surprise that people who are in the thick of it are angry and those who are on the side, not yet pushed off the cliff, are able to engage in humour. But it's interesting you should touch on black comedy, which is essentially what this is. It's a very English liberty thing to engage Mm. in black comedy. It's famous across uh, all the European uh, sitcoms and like shows like Faulty Towers. We love it. It's how Mm. we deal with depression and extraordinary cases of terror and horror and years of war. Humor has always been the way that humans have gotten out of it. But I noticed that... Anybody who's on the left or dictatorship style uh, ideologies are terrified of humor. They don't want to be mocked. They don't want anyone laughing. And they remind me of toddlers. I don't know if you've ever had a young child about three or four, but they're capable of understanding people too. Yeah, well, they're capable of understanding people are laughing at them when they do something Mm. funny and it Mm. infuriates them. They they burst into tears. They have Mm -hmm. tantrums because they don't like being laughed at. That's how totalitarian regimes respond to humour. Have you noticed that well, happening we all, with the Victorian we all know, regime? Yes, it's true. We all know the left can't meme is the saying. Uh, just a little bit of Peppy the Frog and they lose their minds. It is true. And I've been speaking with uh, polit- MPs here in Victoria who I've had on the show and even behind the scenes. And there's, some, there's a commonality in the way they describe Dan Andrews, our premier. Uh, they all say that he's a bit of a bully in parliament and the way to get under his skin is to mock him because he he he's not he's not uh, susceptible to attacks. He handles them very very well and he spins them very very well. But as soon as you start to mock him or belittle him or ignore him, he loses the plot and he starts to get a bit testy. So I think that's very common on the left, and that's something I've been saying recently that when people stop laughing and they're just angry, you know you. We just talked about anger. There's nothing wrong with being angry. Angry is, is very important. Uh, it's what you do with that anger. And some people right now, there was a, there's a protest happening right now as we record this uh, in, in, in every major city around Australia. But the one in Melbourne, I've already watched some of the speeches. Some of them were full of facts and pretty good, like Sanjeev Sublock, the former economist who resigned in protest from the Treasury. But others have been almost unhinged and they are sounding like incitement where they'll give a very nebulous slogans 
but not just slogans. They'll actually call people to arms without actually telling them what to do. And that is a very deliberate technique that we see on the right wing in the US. If if there is any if there is any argument to Donald Trump inciting a riot in the US, it would be along these lines that he was not specific enough uh, when he called for action. That's how they would attack him. So I'm trying to stop that here in Australia. And I think people need to laugh more because when you stop laughing, uh, you get desperate and you start putting shotgun pellets through our premier's electorate office window, which apparently happened a few nights ago. Well, let's talk about humour, particularly going into the United States, as we've just uh, started to go. The left has done something to quash humour. It's not only that they are banning accounts that are humorous or uh, comedians, they're not, not just the deplatforming people. They're making comedy an act of offence and an act of hate mm. speech. To mm. make a joke about a sensitive issue, instead of it being a, a way of humans dealing with their differences or dealing with their problems, that is now offensive and offence has been made illegal, especially in Australia with our, our section uh, 18C, where if you've offended mm. somebody, even via comedy, well, that, that's it, the, the government can come after you. That's a legal constraint on humour. Is that worrying you that we're writing that into law now that you can no longer have a joke? I've got a pretty libertarian mindset and I like to see the law becoming less and less relevant. And I have a history in law as well. So I, um, I'm i not as worried as some on the right are or some conservative people are because if you, if you look, I mean, I feel a bit, funny saying this in front of you you seem very well read compared to me but i the way i understand it is historically speaking it is incredibly hard to keep down the human the human spirit specifically when it comes to the australian spirit of having a fair go having a rational thought common sense you know we're very different from the us there's a very strong center swinging majority here in Australia and even on the right, I guess, that are very resistant to partisanship. And sure, we are seeing that go the wrong way here in Australia. Yes. But I'm very encouraged to see if someone gets up and says, come on, let's be common sense. Let's, yeah, we hated Bill Shorten, but now he's our prime minister. Let's give him a fair go for a couple of years. Most Australians will say, yeah, he's a bit of a tool, but you're right. That's what we do here in Australia. Let's give him a fair go for a year or two and then make a call. And as infuriating as that is sometimes, I think that's a really safe thing. We're slow. We're conservative. Look at our history of referenda. We are very, very conservative as a nation. That's a good thing. Yeah, I've uh, had that discussion with other people in politics about Australia. We're not a revolutionised, highly politicised group of people. And that is, most, for the most part, that's a safe way to be. You don't want an entire generation of young radicals trying to run their fringe politics. That's how you end up in chaos like a lot of Europe. Mm -hmm. But I just want to touch back on that point you said about mm -hmm. uh, you can't really get rid of the human spirit and, and humour. Mm -hmm. I've just finished reading a, about a couple of different revolutions in Europe, particularly the Russian Revolution. And mm -hmm. while, yes, you can't erase the human spirit of rebellion or of humour, when you start having laws and, and regimes that constrict it, what seems to happen every time is that restriction causes, it sort of pushes down on the people and they flow out mm. into chaos and there's a period mm. of upheaval and violence that can't be avoided when That's any correct. kind of totalitarian regime crushes down on that spirit. And so, yeah, at the end of the day, the, the people may rise up and 
return order to themselves, but it does initiate a period of conflict, regardless of who does it. I mean, I've just finished about eight or nine different revolutions in completely different places across the world and for different reasons entirely. But the same mechanism and the same result happens. There's no reason why Australia would be any different where our usual 200 years of free-spiritedness suddenly gets repressed by a draconian system of laws, which we've never seen happen to Australia. Do you well, think yeah, that you're right. So that was... Well, my answer was a, as a macro answer to begin with that, you know, in the end it would be okay. But you're right, it could be 80 years from now, could be 30 years, could be 100 years. That's a scary thought because in the meantime, I've got to live out my whole life. And, you know, you can't discount the micro. And so I agree I agree with you. It is a rough time to go through. But then I think, what what is my role in this? Do I... There's people perhaps like yourself who might be able to articulate it in a more forceful way and come up with a campaign. I'm not good at that, but I am good at sitting back and being a bit slow, but being maybe humorous or people find me trustworthy, but they don't find me fast. And so I just, I run in my lane. I'll be a bit slow and I'll sit at the back here calling for a decent common sense Australia to return. So um, so you're not going to be I, the first one waving the flag running into Parliament House in Victoria. We're not going to see you plastered across the news. Well, I'm not at the protest today. I'm here interviewing with you. And don't get me wrong. I, I understand the fragility of liberty. This is not the natural state of mankind, the natural state of man. You know, Topher Field, a great guy I've, I've interviewed here, he, he thinks that, um, and Gideon Rosner thinks this too, I think, from the IPA I've had here. He, he thinks that capitalism is the default state. As in, we naturally tend to barter. No, I don't think so. I, I think it's the opposite. I think uh, oppression and taking what you want is our default state. And the freedoms we live in now are very, very fragile. So I'm aware of that seeming contradiction. I'm aware of, I'm, I'm appealing to something. I'm actually fighting quite hard under the surface. I'm like a duck or a swan. You know, on the surface, they're very graceful. But underneath- I like how you meted that to swan. You meted a duck to the more graceful swan. Yeah, yeah. So I see myself as being, I'm fighting. When I put out a comedy video like yesterday when I'm all chilled and laughing at the propaganda, inside I have this strong sense of I'm going to war right now, a cultural war. I'm aware of that. Well, it's interesting you bring up that discussion about capitalism being a natural state and also totalitarianism because I I agree with both points. There's certainly capitalism, the reason it's so successful is that it mimics the evolutionary practice of competition and the better product and the better competitor winning and creating more of everything else. That's basically how life works in general. That's why capitalism works. The problem is that human beings like to live inside power structures and power uh, is the default for the human behaviour. We have tribal mm. lords from the beginning. We the, the most violent lord tends to own the most property and take over the most uh, countries and so people flock towards power and that often comes hand in hand with violence. As far as political systems go, uh, uh, one where the person who's in power willingly gives up that power to the people beneath them is unusual and happened Mm. uh, through a unpredictable history that is very unlikely to be repeated. So I think you're both right in that sense and understanding why capitalism works and is natural is not the same as explaining why uh, communism and other types of collectivist oppressive systems are the norm. 
Well, I think I'm more right than them in this. I'll put my argument forward here because when you say capitalism could be the norm only within a resolved power structure, and that's the key. It wasn't until humanity were able to resolve that issue because natural forming hierarchies are everywhere. If you go back to the most basic of animal instincts where the, the alpha male dominates and then someone else challenges them and takes over the pride, uh, once you sort that, which we did through our power struggles over hundreds of years, then I think you can start to see uh, free market, free exchange start to thrive within those bounds. That's why even a libertarian philosophy has to be has to be couched within the still there's a state protecting life, liberty. Um, I'm starting to quote the American Constitution, but they have to have the non-aggression principle. You have to have private property ownership. Right. Starting from the Lockean idea of I own my own body, you need this basic solving of power to have the free market to operate within. Now, if you think about uh, chimps, so we know that when you have uh, apes, chimps, when they play games with each other, that if the dominant male, the dominant animal does not let the subservient one win X number of times, I can't remember the number, I think it's two out of five games, then the subservient chimp refuses to play future games. So the dominant chimp is incentivized to allow the smaller one to win at least two out of five times or at least play a game that is reasonable so like what i'm saying that um safe place within which mark free markets can operate where you've you've solved the power issue because if they don't and they constantly win then not only does the little one not want to play the game anymore the big one doesn't get to play doesn't get to win doesn't get anything anymore and i, I think that's why i'm smarter than gideon rosner and Field. what we are what we are dancing around here before before the IPA comes for us, uh, two things. The first is the greatest question of humanity, which is the division of power and how to divide power so that it can still hold society together but not rule it in a totalitarian fashion. And the second is the it doesn't matter that society has different levels to it and that you might be born into one class and someone's born into another class. It's that those classes are porous and that you can move between classes in other words you can play the game of civilization there are rules that everyone has and are the same for everybody else and that system of fairness because humans are preoccupied with fairness if we don't feel that something is fair we freak mm. out and that's always mm. been the case with human beings that's why our laws have to be fair otherwise we rebel against them straight away is that sort of what you're getting at well, this is biological as well. Again, back to the monkeys, that's the same thing. They will actually spite the other monkey if they think something's unfair. We see this in lab experiments where they have treats and they will actually have the opportunity to still have treats, but because they're not getting the same deal as the other one on the other side of the glass, they will refuse to eat because the fairness is, is such a high value. But, you know, to be fair to the left right now, because I feel like sometimes their arguments about class can be misrepresented and... I don't think that the true argument on the left is that class is evil and we've got to overcome class stratifications. I They are actually arguing from what I see that class mobility, the very thing that you're advocating that we tend to rely on as an argument, they're saying that class mobility is non-existent or at least decreasing. And so when they no. complain about the concentration of wealth into the 1%, when I've had discussions with them, they're like, yes, you're correct with your free market philosophy, Matt. However, it's getting harder and harder for us to scrape, to get up there. That might be the modern youth who have got a bit of capitalism entrenched into the middle of democracy. But if you read their heroes who they think they're copying, no, they very much wanted to destroy class entirely. And they, they, didn't, they weren't interested in mobility of class. They wanted no class. 
but what they wanted to put no, in its no place one follows that is, but what they want to put in its place was a system of absolute authority. So as long as you belong to the correct collective, whichever collective the particular movement was involved in, whether that was a race collective or a economic collective or a workers' collective, that collective then had absolute supremacy over the political system and over other parts of that system who weren't involved in the collective. So it was actually very it was a sinister ideology when you read its roots and who and who wrote and how it was designed. That has I been agree with you. because our education system is so poor plenty of university kids have no idea how those systems were designed and what the people who wrote them actually thought. So it, it was about destroying the entire concept of a class structure to replace it with a collectivist structure, which had its own systematic rules that were rigid and could not be moved. So if you refused to be part of a union, for instance, in, in one of these class structures, that was it. You you were removed from other rights inside that, that civil society. The only people well, who believe in class mobility are actually democracies. Yeah, but historically speaking, yes, you're correct. But again, I'm not arguing for that. I'm 35 years old. I'm arguing for what I observe in the people around me today, which primarily come from the West, from a privileged capitalist, whatever, you know, they're like me. But they wear Che Guevara t-shirts. They wear Marxism symbols. They don't actually want Marxism. They don't know what Marxism is, really. They have a small idea. No, but so let's challenge that. Let's let's have a look at how those kids behave with people they don't agree with, who we call a different class. So let's take race politics, for instance, or even we can take Republicans versus Democrats. If you don't subscribe to the collective identity group that they like, they are already talking about removing rights, removing privileges, removing access to services from the groups that they do not like. That is an impenetrable class structure of a different name, but it, it, it comes in society exactly the same way. So while they might claim to want an equal world, they certainly don't behave that way in their in their discussions, their ideology, or what they're trying to put in practice socially. So what if you go a little bit more meta then in those same people? They they are making those horrible actions now, but when their worlds get threatened, so for example, when the left turn on the left, when they start to eat their own, and we start to see them become, what do they call it, red-pilled, right? When you start to see them come out on the other side, previously left who have gone right. How do you explain that? Because so what I'm arguing... This is the problem with collectivism. It happens not just in modern left, it happened before as well in the, in the older lefts. They all started to consume themselves with their smaller and smaller collectivist groups. But we'll take modern left for this discussion because you've quite rightly pointed that out. The LGBT movement's a great one to start with because that's where identity politics really got going. That's where they started to divide up in groups. We're now seeing um, the, tran the trans movement turn on the the lesbian movement and the, and that mm. turned on the women's movement. And so mm. you get two things happen. You get some people who get kicked out of the movement entirely who mm. reject the whole system of ideology and identity politics, but then you get the majority of it descending and entrenching themselves deeper and deeper into their divisions and they just start to fight. And that mess will have to be sorted out by somebody and usually what happens is uh, someone in power goes, all right, enough, <laughs> stop. We're going to go back to the normal way of having rules and you guys have got to calm down because that cycle of um, victimhood and oppression doesn't end anywhere. There's Everyone's got infinite divisions and infinite groups and because they're all vying for victimhood, which you can't materialise and you can't measure, there's no winner. That's the problem with identity politics. But if you continue to infinitely divide into smaller and smaller groups of identity politics, you know, a famous quote by Peterson that eventually you'll end up at liberalism, the individual again, right? So what I'm arguing, again, I'm trying to go a bit more meta. I'm trying to say, I believe in your arguments. I agree with them too. And I see what I'm observing now is, is a joke. However, 
I feel like us, I say us, I don't even know if I'm on the right, but I feel like those of us who are a bit more logical and who are not on the left, let's say, I feel like we don't give enough uh, weight to the grievances of the left. Now, this is, I understand people are screaming, but the left have grievances about nothing and they're, they're a joke. I get it, I get it. But in our response to that, we just say they're little children, they're toddlers, they're idiots, shut them down, nobody wants to hear them. And then we just create, you know, uh, what, do you, what do you call Shapiro show? The Daily the Daily Wire or whatever it's called. Great, great platform. But we just we just go into this partisanship. And I'm, I'm just trying to say, hang on a minute. My friends on the left who have a problem with like Occupy Wall Street on the left 10 years ago, I thought were all crazy. Now I'm starting to see... Mm, they have a point and they had some legitimate grievances. And so maybe the crazies that are in my life right now, the crazy lefties, maybe I should just open my mind a bit to kind of consider whether there's some validity to some of their arguments and they just lost their way in prosecuting them. Do you know what the uh, the organizers of Occupy Wall Street did when they were down there? They uh, divided originally, up- Originally, like 10 years ago? Yeah, the original Occupy yeah, no, Wall no, Street. Yeah. In, order to, mm. in order to speak, to organize their speakers to get up on the stage and and have the discussions about Occupy Wall Street. They first divided the people who were there by race, then they divided them by gender, then they divided them by sexuality, and then assigned those people in the queue their right and time to speak based upon the sum of their identity politics. At some point, the problem, I, I agree with your point saying, we'll go back to the first point you had there, which was if we keep dividing ourselves, won't we end up with individuality? That is a logical argument that you think would make sense, but when you watch what actually happens in practice, because humans are not perfectly rational creatures, we don't follow an algorithm, they find which identity matters most to them and then they entrench themselves on that identity. So instead of becoming individuals, they they divide up the identity politics more firmly into groups and those groups then become warring factions. And those warring factions... I don't think factions, they have... They are, though. Well, that's, that's what they all... That's what they're doing. That's why we're seeing trans, no, no. the trans I'm, I, in- I, I'm not saying I don't think they have. I said I don't think they have to. So I agree no, with you. That's what they, they do. Well, I, that's part of the mission of what I'm doing with this journal. We're trying to get people to skip forward a few steps. Because, you know, when you talk about the Occupy Wall Street thing, I feel like you're doing to me what I'm talking about. You're making a very sound point about the way they were ridiculous and dividing up speaking time. But what I'm pointing to is they did have a point. If you look at the Wall Street bets phenomenon that just happened, you had the shocking behavior by um, not just GameStop, but who are they owned by Citadel Securities and all these other people. Uh, the the way that the elites shut that all down, that was the core of the accusation that the Occupy Wall Street people had back 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, whatever it was. Occupy Wall Street so, is an interesting, it's an interesting topic, but uh, they're not the only ones who had a grievance with Wall Street. The actual movement of Occupy Wall Street was about the larger kind of eat the rich movement where they were trying to tear down mm. any and all uh, money-making mm. activity, not for the purpose of reforming it because they simply hate people who have money. So the concept of what they were trying to do is not what you're, very, what you're correctly saying. There is a genuine grievance with Wall Street and plenty of people have tried to uh, raise that grievance about how Wall Street operates in the predatory fashion. But what that particular movement was doing was trying, it was part of the largest social Marxist constraint of we don't like anybody having money. That's a capitalist system. Therefore, we have to destroy yes. the whole system. And so that's why they had so much social politics inside their movement on the ground. It was a reflection of the leadership of the movement itself and what they were trying to achieve. 
but it's it's interesting like you're right there are there are grievances in life but what we're seeing now is almost uh, a trivialization of grievance by people who've indoctrinated children who are actually searching for power and using these people as a mechanism to stir trouble and what do you do with a population for example i've been rambling on but let me just put this way to you um you've got kids who say they are part of the workers revolt against the capitalist system but they're kids who've never worked never been in the workforce so they consider themselves to be a workers revolution made up of kids who don't work or who spent five months at a cafe that's not a workers revolution but they're using the language of revolution that's clear propaganda so what do you do with kids who are operating on what is obviously propaganda that doesn't belong to them it's not from issues that came from them well, this is this is my my point, and I think this is why we might not be agreeing so much on this topic is because I'm trying to acknowledge that factually you have it, you're on it, you have it, you're on the ball, you got it, and I agree with it. But I feel like so many of us stop there, and when it gets to the question of what do we do, if we just follow your amazing argument, then it's just they're idiots, they're just shut, they're wrong, they're wrong, no. they're wrong, they're wrong. I be educated i was about to say i was about to say we we have to educate them is what i thought you might say which is what you just said we have to educate <laughs> them we have to teach them because they're wrong i'm trying to take a more of an empathetic approach and say yes i know they're wrong i know they have no idea i know they worked in glory jeans for three months and they're 14 and a half i get it but why <laughs> i'm asking the psychological reason why there's there's a reason why they feel the need to uh find meaning to find purpose to find identity in fighting these stupid little battles which you tear apart and we need people like you to tear them apart but i want to fight a side battle here and say well hang on why are they feeling such a lack of meaning or purpose or identity where where have we failed them as parents or as society and how can we acknowledge parts of their problems because if we just say no you're a woke person you don't understand let me educate you this is how history actually went down that doesn't reach them they need to be heard first let me put it this way. Do you think the reason they do it is not because they're aggrieved, but because society at large and corporations are rewarding them socially and economically for this activism? Well, we may have now, we would probably be good to analyse our views, our worldviews in the sense that do you believe people are primarily a function of the forces that impinge on them externally? Or how much do you believe it's an internal force and what's the balance and split therein? Uh, and I am only guessing now, you can correct me here, but I would say, just speaking to you for a few months now, I might believe in more of an internal driven good, internal driven bad, internal driven overall. And I guess I have a religious view as well, so that informs that. Uh, whereas when I hear you make your arguments, I often hear you profoundly, but but explaining things from an external pressure point of view. And so that that may be just us both looking at the same problem from a different perspective. And I, I just see it as more of an internal drive issue. That'd be because I come from a, an environment in which I have to analyze problems from a third party uh, disenfranchised state. Because in order, in order to solve a problem, you have to look at both aspects or all aspects of a problem inside a system to understand mm. where it's going wrong and what people want. That's what concerns me about the problem of the social politics is that because it doesn't have a real grievance, you can't give it mm. a real solution. So if the kids, their problem was they weren't paid enough, for instance, you could fix that with fixing the pay systems. But because their grievance is we want to tear, we, we get rewarded whenever we attack people, 
That means they will continue to attack people and be rewarded for that behavior, regardless of what systems you try to put in place to correct it. So there's no end to that problem. So the only way to resolve that is to go back to the system itself and address the education and the propaganda that has affected the kids in the first place. It's almost like a cult. But, but I can put see, it to you. Know, I don't know. You want to go? You go first. I just I have a problem with the fact that you said they don't have a real grievance. See, that's what we're talking. That's where we're having a disconnect because I'll follow you all the way. But then, when if you don't acknowledge that they have a grievance, so you're saying their grievance is fake. On this, I agree. But I'm saying there's a grievance behind that. Like, mummy didn't make me feel value or give me a sense of direction in life. And I'm saying that's their grievance. So they don't oh, need us to come and educate them. Bad parenting is definitely a grievance. That's a, um, that's definitely true that these kids are not well adjusted to the rigors of society because they're not. Um, uh, did you grow up online? Did you spend a lot of time on social media when you were like 15, 16? Uh, it can, I straddle both worlds. I'm part of that generation because I'm 34 where it shifted when I was in school, when I was in year 11, 16, 17 so years old. So I remember both. Right. So I don't know if you noticed it, but I grew up deeply entrenched in online social forums. I was a moderator. And so mm. I've watched the behavior that I'm now seeing go mainstream because when I grew up, it was only the, the um, tech yeah. kids and the, and the sci-fi nerds who did it, right? Yeah. But now I'm watching all of culture do it. And so what you got yeah. rewarded for is if you could pick a fight and you could take on a, a cause, no matter how meaningless, you got rewarded with social points. You got reblogged. You got to become a star online from doing essentially nothing. That's how that's how it worked. And so now you've got kids who go out to a protest rally, take a photograph, and they might get you know five thousand reblogs, and that gives them yep. social status within inside their their school yep. community. And that is a that's a basic problem with how kids are raised these days, which is they're being raised online in unmonitored communities where that mm. is the that's the mechanism by which these kids gain. Uh, meaning out of life they're not getting it from going to work they're not making their parents proud they're not getting these achievements they're literally dealing with social systems and that's how they are mm. uh, advancing and then they get to university and the universities reinforce that behavior instead of saying hello here's the real world now you got to go to work now you got to become a real human being do you see that as a a new problem for society because it's a different way of interacting where they're not being given real world problems they're not failing like they should be failing young and learning to deal emotionally with issues yeah, but again, is it is it the role of society or is it, for example, the role of a father? So let's say, for example, the black conservative, the well-known conservative black members, uh, people that influencers that talk about this. I can't remember the names, but they say the number one problem facing America is a lack of uh, fathers in the black community. And then they trace that down into that's why you get crime and that's why you get some of these um symptomatic things that that you're talking about and then of course that infiltrates culture into universities and that becomes the power structures and then those people run those things and then you have this you know they start to entrench those things in society and then it replicates these these bad ideas as we go i feel like um you know we need people like you and others who are going to fight to fix the errors in our systems and i am more thinking about yeah i agree with that black pastor or whoever it was saying if we just had less fatherless black boys in Chicago, uh, they would learn how to act in a whole different way from good role models. And then of course, you know, how do you make sure that the fathers are good role models and so on? And so I, yeah, I think it is a problem what you're saying, but I'm wondering if I can fight it from a more core and systemic place, which is gonna take way beyond my lifetime. Uh, and it's really in line with Breitbart, Andrew Breitbart's quote that 
politics is downstream from culture. You know, I try and fight at the root more than the fruit, mainly because I'm not that good at fighting at the fruit. Like even now, when you're giving me an argument, I'm not really full of facts to come back with an alternative argument. I just agree with you on the on on the surface kind of stuff, and I just automatically default back to yeah, but what's behind it? So I think okay, I just well, naturally let's give, let's give you a more to... challenging question, and let's give you something that with a bit more meat on it that you have to fight for. How would you right. fight in because you're in Danistan? Let's remember this, and I am going to use the name of Danistan. What are you going to sure. do when you've got when you've got these social justice warrior kids have graduated to the point that they are now in charge of writing the legislation and policies yep. which you require to operate your business? What do you do when they decide that they don't like you, they don't like your social politics, so you're now deemed hate speech? You can't ask mm. questions. You can't be funny, Matt. What are you going to do when they shut you down? Do you? How do you protest that kind of authoritarianism when it impacts your we're, life? Yeah, we we because you know we're living this. We're making these decisions now here in Victoria, Stan. Uh, we have had two different responses from the resistance, shall we call? There are those businesses who stand up like Harry's Clothing in Berwick, legend of a guy, and he said, you know what? He was the first to come out. I'm gonna in the big lockdown last year. I'm gonna open anyway. This is wrong. I can't survive. And he. Police came and find him, blah, blah, blah. There was a gym, Al's gym that just did it a few days ago in our five-day lockdown. Uh, there were gym, there's, there's businesses that publicly come out and make a stand. I was very encouraged to hear about, uh, how many? More than 10 that I heard of businesses that continued to quietly trade during our five-day lockdown. So if you were a cafe or whatever, you just stayed open. People, your, your 40 customers a day came in and sat down and ate. Your risk is limited to 40 times five days, and that's it. And some, some just started to sell grapes, but they were a gym, so they stayed open as an essential service because they were selling fruit. And th- that's what I'm advocating for, and that's what I'm, I would do. Uh, to answer no, your question, no, I, I, no, I would react. What would you do? If you, they they I would, shut your channel I would, down? I would react by, so if I talk about normal business first before big tech, because I think yeah, big sure. tech has other issues. A normal business, like I've had many normal businesses, like a gym or whatever, right? A medical, I've had these things. If I, I would do what they're doing, the quiet continue to trade people. That's what I would do. I wouldn't do the, this is wrong, stand up, put it on social media, I'm going to fight, I'm going to open anyway. Both are valid, we need both, but I, I think that it's, you know, you're seem what you seem worried that they're taking control of the judiciary and their laws, and yes, big worry. But at the end of the day, we why? How many police are in Victoria? Twenty four thousand. How many people are in Victoria? six point four million? There is the option to live our lives despite what they might say or do. It's a matter of what can you get away with. In fact, it be, we become like Southeast Asia. What I'm talking about is not a not a great end game, but we become like the Philippines, where people disrespect authority and they get along with their lives. You see, the reason I worry is because you're quite right. There aren't enough police, technically, to enforce the rules. But that has always been the case. And despite Mm. that technical uh, limit of police versus people, somehow authority manages to use social politics Mm -hmm. to constrain Mm -hmm. the masses, even if they don't have the numbers to do it by force. They do have the numbers, though, Ellie. That's called people. And we saw this from 1946 to 1993 in in East Germany, right? We ha- you have you right, have that's why I'm worried about social politics because the so they are using the kids of today to control yeah. the few remaining adults who may want to protest. Yeah, so the Stasi is what I'm referring to, right, in East Germany, and this is what this is the real problem. Now we can talk about big tech. This is the bigger <laughs> issue: is when the community turn on the community. 
when you, this is why I fought so hard against it and I put out so many times, I've said it so many times in video, don't dob in your neighbor because our police force, our chief, our assistant commissioner was telling us to dob in your neighbor and here's the number and if there's too many cars in your street, ring VicPol. That is the real scary thing because it's, if they start to divide and conquer us, we're done. And, and this is why I fight in that realm and this is what scares me about big tech is not so much the laws, not so much what they ban or if they close down my channel or just one other channel, but if they start to get other people to pile on to you know, us against us and they trick us into thinking that we're, we're each other's enemy, it's the same thing happening right now with Facebook in Australia banning news. Everyone thinks that big tech is so evil, which they are, that we need to get on the side of Channel 9, uh, Fairfax, and uh, News Corp, and the ABC against the evil big tech overlords. And then ScoMo is co-opting this this social uh, feeling at the moment and saying they've unfriended Australia, will not back down. And everyone's angry at big tech. I've worked in these newsrooms. So I used to be the director of an AI company for APAC, Asia Pacific. And we would go into the newsrooms of the BBC, Bauer Media, Vice, uh, Vogue, Sydney Morning Herald, Nine, Fairfax. We were there. And I saw the way that these chief editors and below would run their businesses. The, what, they, what they've been doing is using free Facebook accounts, platforms, creating it, taking all that traffic, posting a clickbait headline, sending people over to the websites and cashing in. They've gone down the clickbait hole and used Facebook. And now that their media model is dying and people like us are slowly trying to take over, they turn around and cry Paul and go and rent seek from the government. That is wrong. So what... That's actually We're the not- argument that I had in my article about six months ago, that the, the legislation the government's doing is basically the hated link tax from the European uh, Union yeah. copyright directive they tried to put into place, where they're interfering with a parasitic relationship between the media, the customers, and a private company. What they should be doing is focusing on big tech's monopoly laws, their antitrust laws, mm. and making sure they cannot act as publishers by ensuring there are proper punishments for Section 230 violations. That way, everyone's got an even playing field and the government should not be interfering in creating media monopoly with the big four boys against the free market independent press. This is why you're so much better at uh, policy than me. Like you've just, you know, six months ago, you beat me to the punch and you've got a very articulate way of describing what I did. You know how I described it on my channel the other day? I said it's like those movies King Kong and Godzilla. So if you watch the movie King Kong... He wrecks the city and it's us versus King Kong, right? If you watch the movie Godzilla, it's, again, Godzilla wrecking the city. It's us versus Godzilla. But then they do a crossover movie, King Kong versus Godzilla. And this weird thing happens. We, the viewer, start to get on the side of, in this this case, King Kong, because we want him to defeat Godzilla. But that's a trick. They're both big, evil, scary, reptile-type things that take over our city. And that's what's happening right now with big media and big tech. They are Godzilla and King Kong. We need to not choose a side. We need to sit back and, and make sure that the right thing happens, not not pick one evil over the other. What I do like is how we're able to bring back any policy and any political point to science fiction. It, it is possible to always, always fall back you on promised, science fiction. You promised that we talk about Stargate SG-1, that great documentary okay. from 1997 to 2007. Okay, we can, we can talk about Stargate SG-1, uh, the best TV show ever made. I'll let you go. Oh. Who's your favorite character in Stargate SG One? For different reasons, or do I just have to choose one? You have to pick one straight away. What kind of fan Everyone, are you? Pick one. 
No, of course I'm going to say Amanda Tapping because I was 15, 16 at the time and she was pretty and whatever, right? So Sam Carter. And she was cute with the hat and she, and she was cute. But the reason why I ask is everyone wants you to pick Jack O'Neill because he's funny. Others want to pick Tilk because he's really cool. But I'm going to give a special mention to Jonas Quinn because Jonas Quinn did an amazing job of coming in and stealing our hearts, replacing someone incredibly big in the show, Michael Shanks, Daniel Jackson. And somehow his entry and exit had no friction, both on and off screen, when Michael Shanks came back to reprise Dr. Daniel Jackson. So Jonas Quinn, special mention, but you can't go past Amanda Tapping. Hello. Yeah, I wanted to be I wanted to be Sam Carter and um, Lara Croft from Tomb Raider when I was growing up. They, they were my two main goals to be a space traveling Tomb Raider. Uh, the, the thing about Jonas Quinn is is great because we all hated him because he was replacing yeah. a fan favorite, but he was actually a really good replacement. He was. And that happens in yeah. politics all the time where you get someone walk in who's replacing someone who was greatly loved, but who might actually be really good on their own. But my mm. favorite thing about Stargate is the producers told Michael Shanks, Daniel Jackson, that if he ever left, the only way they'd bring him back would be naked in the middle of the cornfield. And they made good on that threat <laughs> when he wanted to come back. Gee, his body was good when he came back. He's working out. <laughs> yeah, up in the yeah. All of our regular viewers are like, "What is going on in this discussion?" But just uh, Google Michael Shanks naked cornfield. You should get <laughs> less weird results if you include cornfield. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're gonna get interrupted in a second. I'm gonna ask you the proper question. So at the end of um, every session, I put the question forward: If you could have dinner. With oh, that's right. Anybody, living or dead, who would it be and why? So I would want to. Well, I'll name. It really is just one, but I'll name two because they're basically the same person to me. So there's this theologian and apologist called C.S. Lewis, uh, Christian Christian theologian, and I liken him to Solomon from the Bible, which is a wise guy in um, who wrote Pro the Book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, right? The reason why is because I find that C.S. Lewis is like, a, to me, is a modern day Solomon. It's because they have this incredible ability to distill thoughts and concepts in a way that's, that almost no one else does. And I'll give you a couple of C.S. Lewis, Lewis quotes to prove it. And I feel like whether you're, whatever religion you are, there are just a few people like, like that. Or, or no religion like yourself. There, there are just some people like that who are able to say things like, it is not by this... Well, I won't give you that quote. I'll give you a better quote. Dan Andrews right now is wrecking Victoria, right? People think that he is deliberately trying to destroy us. And I keep quoting C.S. Lewis to them who says, uh, it is better to be um, oppressed by a robber baron than a moral busybody because the cupidity of a moral uh, of a robber baron will sometimes sleep. You know, their greed will eventually be satiated. But those like the moral busybodies who persecute us for our own good do so without end because they do it with the approval of their own conscience. And so C.S. Lewis was able to distill a thought like that, which explains so much to me of the character of someone like Dan Andrews, who gets up every morning to save Victoria and do the best. And sure, he wants to build his profile and beat liberals and all that. But at the end of the day, he doesn't sit there plotting how he's going to wreck the state. That doesn't serve him. It doesn't serve us. There's no incentive to do that. The reason why he's wrecking the state is because he's an idiot. 
not because he's trying to. And so, yeah, C.S. Lewis is someone I'd want to sit with and I and I'd want to f- sit there and find out how they think. How do they come up with these concepts like the screw tape letters, okay? Again, another religious reference, but he wrote this book called The Screw Tape Letters where instead of writing about demons are this scary dark thing, he wrote a manuscript from one master demon to a younger trainee demon. And so he was able to encapsulate the Christian ideology by talking about the enemy in Christianity and and personifying one demon talking to a smaller demon. And it's just an incredible way of turning a concept on its head and bringing truth to the front. And Solomon did that as well in the Bible. So C.S. Lewis. You have a very interesting dinner party, I think. Uh, Thank Mm. you so much for joining us here on Curtain Call. We wish you all the best of luck with your endeavors with Discernible and we'll keep an eye out for your videos and I encourage all of our listeners to go and have a watch. Um, so thank you for joining us. Yes, and let me finish by saying I am one of your biggest fans. I've said it to you so many times off air, so let me say it on, on air. I like you so much. I don't know what it is, but you are ama- I, I think you're amazing. I don't know, there's something about you. I'm very happy that you're out there getting a name for yourself because... Uh, there is something more than just an art. You know what I was talking about earlier, people getting angry. I love the fact that you can go out there and prosecute an argument, but there is something very, uh, I think, intellectually attractive about what you're doing. And I think that's rare. So thank you for doing it. It's the vampire age where we're coming for everybody. (laughs) Thank you, Matt. Thank you for joining us on Curtain Call. We are hosted by The Good Source, the home of conservative and libertarian voices. Help us fight fake news by following us online. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and all good podcasting services. If you enjoy this content, please like and subscribe.